0: All right. Well, uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Marco. I am the preaching pastor, uh, preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse uh, Community. Uh, thank you guys so much for joining us uh, this morning. Glad to to have you here. Uh, I was absent from the pulpit for, for two weeks, and, uh, and, and, it was, and it was a good two weeks. So first, Thank you for allowing me to, to get that time with my family. That was really good. Hanging and spending time with my, my wife, whom I call my rib, was really, really restful and fruitful. Uh, in addition to that, uh, thank you. And I know you'll hear it at some point. Thank you to, to Ruben Goyala from the Harlingen campus. Who uh, from Logos Harlingen? Who did a tremendous job uh, uh, preaching over the past two weeks? I love listening and watching and sitting under his teaching. Uh, he has taught me a lot. He has uh, been a good friend, a faithful teacher to me. Uh, what uh, so many, so many things, all the things. Um, thank you to our volunteers our leadership our volunteer leadership who really i don't want to say just like held the fort down right but they essentially did all the things so well i uh, heard so many good things so so you guys who volunteer, leadership, just thank you. Thank you so much for everything that, that you guys continue to do, not just over the past two weeks, but everything that you've continued uh, to, to do. Now, as, uh, as we move forward, we're going to find ourselves in James chapter 3 today, verses 1 through 12. Uh, yeah, verses 1 through 12. If you're new, uh, this is what we do here at Storehouse. We like to go through books of the Bible because we love Jesus and we love his word. And so we go through books of the Bible, we go verse by verse, which means sometimes we got to face tough topics uh, and we're not going to skip over them. We're actually going to go right into them, right? Uh, And so we're going to find ourselves once again, James chapter 3. I think this is week seven or six of our time in the book of James. We're in a series right now called Faith in Action. And by way of recap, let me give you a little bit about James in the event that you're new or you've missed a couple of sermons, right? So James is Jesus's half-brother, and he's a pastor, a leader, a teacher in the church in Jerusalem. And he's writing this letter to, ultimately, the church. And what is going on is uh, his, his letter is immensely practical, right? He dives into uh, a, a lot of, uh, I guess, a lot of practical application for the Christian life. And the reason he does that is because he's writing to a people, to a context that knows a lot about God, but isn't doing much about it. You feel me on that, right? And so, so that, that's the context, that's the audience that he is writing to. A lot of people, when they look through James, or they, they begin to read James, uh, and they compare him to someone, for example, like the Apostle Paul, they'll say, well, Paul goes in really deep into theological doctrine and argument, and that's Paul's uh, wheelhouse, and that's awesome. What James is doing is, as he writes to the church, uh, what is already implied is that they understand doctrine, that they have a solid foundation on the person and work of Jesus. Again, what is actually Absent is the work that faith produces, right? And so what we're going to find ourselves in today is we're going to be talking about the tongue. So uh, Sean read uh, the passage earlier, so this is what I'll do. We're going to break it up into sections, walking through each one. It feels like a lot because it's about 11 verses or 12 verses. It feels like it's a lot. But one of the things James does in his style of writing is that he presents a lot of analogies right he he presents and writes a lot of analogies he includes that in his writing so that we can better understand the main point that he's making so this is what i'm going to do i'm going to pray right and then we're going to dive into the first two verses and as we get to those two verses i'm going to open briefly with not just the main idea but a brief illustration right let me let me pray join me in prayer as we as we prepare our hearts heavenly father as we uh look at your word. I would ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to do a work in our hearts, to do a work in our lives, that ultimately as we hear your word, one, I would be set aside and that any wisdom that is communicated, it would be from your spirit. Number two, that as we hear your word, we would be reminded that you're not condemning us, but you are convicting us, and you are convicting us so that we would confess and repent of our sin, place our trust in Jesus, and ultimately respond in worship to the grace that you've freely given Lord, I also pray for things that are going on outside of our time right now, things like lunch, things like uh, uh, family occasions, uh, things like maybe even work. Lord, I pray that those things, while important, would not be the priority right now, that we would place our hearts and our attention directly to our time in worship together as a family, and again, as we hear your preached word. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. All right, here we go. How many people have had a conversation with others? Yes, one person. Cool. I love it. We're all introverts. All right, have you ever had that conversation? Maybe even what some uh, married couples called a heated discussion, right? Where you had that, and and one of the things you say later on is, that's not what I meant. Who said that? Be honest. (laughs) Right right that's not what i meant right that's not what i meant to say you took it wrong right okay right you're taking it out of context right oh you're just bringing it back up all these sound like devastatingly familiar right okay all of those different things here here's here's the main point if you don't hear anything else i want you to hear this okay the mouth is a revelation of the heart the mouth is a revelation of the heart. That is ultimately the crux of our time today. That is the heart of what we're going to be talking about today as we look to what James is going to say regarding the tongue, All right? that's, that's, that's the main point, that the mouth is a revelation of the heart. And as a church family, and we're specifically going to be talking about the church, as a church family, what you and I need to understand is that it's important how we communicate with one another, and what we communicate is just as important, right? You feel me on that? What we communicate is important, and how we communicate with one another is just as important. The reason behind this is, it's because words matter. Language matters, right? And one of the best ways in which we learn more about ourselves is by inviting others to tell us and speak the words that we've said back to us. That's really hard, isn't it? That's really hard to invite someone into your life and uh, uh, ultimately give them a free range to say, Hey, tell me what I said, or how, how did I say what I just said, or how did that go? And then they kind of share some really hard things, right? And so ultimately, or most of the time, what you and I will tend to do is we won't have those conversations, we won't have those conversations because you know someone's going to have to say something or someone has something to say. But nonetheless, as we talk about tough topics, words, uh, words being important is a topic that, while not profoundly theological, is incredibly significant to the Christian life. It's incredibly significant to the Christian life. And so we're going to start in verses 1 through 2 in James. And what I want you to notice quickly is that he's going to start with teachers, right? And oftentimes what we tend to do when we read something in scripture, if we think that it doesn't apply to us because we may not necessarily be a teacher or we don't think we find ourselves as a teacher, right? We're going to tune out. But I would encourage you not to. If the entire uh, heart of our time today is that the mouth, and that's something that you're just going to hear over and over again, right? That the mouth is a revelation of the heart, then we're going to go verse by verse. So let's go to verses 1 through 2 in chapter 3. James writes, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. So he's, he's talking to the church. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble. Now, if you love notes, if you love underlining, and if you love highlighting, highlight and underline that we all stumble. We're going to spend some time on that in just a bit. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his uh, his whole body. Right here we go. We're going to begin with teachers. Now. When we're talking about teachers, we're going to drill in pretty specifically in a bit. But before I drill into that specifically, here's, here's what I want you to know. You might be a teacher. Just because maybe you don't have a classroom doesn't mean you're not necessarily not a teacher. Are you any parents? Do we have any parents in here? You're a teacher. Okay. You're, you're a teacher. Any, any big brothers, big sisters, older older siblings? You're a teacher. Okay. Right? Uh, Any any coaches or trainers? Anything like that? Right? We got two. Right? That's hey, that's cool. That's awesome, man. That you're a teacher, right? Uh, Community group leaders. I know some aren't, aren't here today. Community group leaders, you're a teacher. Deacons, you fall into some teaching capacity, right? The truth of the matter is that there's a lot of, there's this giant category of teachers. And James starts with teachers because I think, or I think the reason he starts with teachers is because the words teachers have have big impact and great influence, right? Teachers have a significant impact and have a significant influence in those that they are ultimately teaching, right? Like, for example, uh, my my dad, my pops, right? Uh, He's been a teacher, he's a Spanish teacher uh, for 46, 44 years now, right? Like, he's still in the game, doesn't want to retire. But I remember, I remember uh, being a kid, right? And there was only like two HEBs at the time. And one of them was, it had just moved to the one on Ware Road, if you guys know what I'm talking about. So at the time, I remember. I remember going to HEB and spending four hours buying bread, and it wasn't because there's just so many options of bread. It's because there were so many students that my dad had had over the years that they would come and say, "Oh, Mr. DeLeon, remember me? I had you in first grade. Meet my family," right? You know, or or when he would teach uh, summer school at Jackson Elementary, he, uh, kids would run up to him and say, "Mr. Delion, Mr. Delion, look at what I'm doing this summer. This is my mom and dad." And it was just we were just going to buy bread, man, and like we'd spend a couple of hours at HEB, and everybody was at that HEB because there was only like two HEBs at the time, right? Trenton wasn't there yet. Okay? It was the Globe H-E-B and then the H-E-B on Where Road, previously now where the Salvation Army is at. right? We would go for hours. I hated it. right? I hated it. But knowing this, knowing this aspect of it, it goes to show you that teachers have a great influence on their students. Teachers have a great influence on those that are under their care. Right? And I think the reason he starts with teachers is not just because of that, but it's also to give this practical warning about the fact that teachers will be judged stricter by God. Because what they do, what they communicate, matters. It matters. In addition to that, drilling a little bit more specific into the heart of the church, particularly in ministry, Oftentimes, what tends to happen inside the church is whether you're new or you just got plugged in or you're getting plugged in and you might see other people stepping up and into leadership, you might tend to think to yourself, oh my gosh, maybe I should do that. Why aren't I doing that? Should I desire and aspire to do those things, right? And that might be you. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But let me unload some pressure off of you. Not everyone is called to be a teacher, Not everyone is called to be a teacher. So there's some pressure off of you if that's how you feel. Not everyone is called to be a teacher. However, should you be called to teach to have influence and impact on others, man, let me give you three recommendations from my own failures, okay? Now, you might already be a teacher. This could still apply to you. This might even bring back some memories. This might be something that could help you communicate to others, you feel me on that? So, again, we're dealing specifically with the church in this case, but if you find yourself aspiring to wanting to be a teacher, he would be my three recommendations. All right, number one. Oh, they're up there. Number one, be patient. Be patient. Be incredibly patient. Make sure that you find yourself under someone's authority. Right. Make sure that you find yourself under someone's authority, which means that you find yourself as a good student. Listen, listen to the things that are going on around you. Ask a lot of questions, observe as much as you can. When you're given an opportunity to be a part of something or participate in a meeting or a conference or whatever else is going on, take it. Don't complain, take it, take it. Listen, be patient. Begin to construct your own convictions. Ask questions. Oftentimes, this is where, this is, this is like the first thing that often gets overlooked because we want to jump into so many things. We want to jump into uh, a, a teaching opportunity very, very, very quickly. And for various reasons, which tie into the second one. The second thing is pursue humility. Pursue Humility. Right? Oftentimes many people want to jump into teaching positions because they crave more than anything power, authority, and influence, and they overlook the cost. They overlook the cost of that. Right? I can remember when I moved to Denton, right? Denton, Texas. Denton is just north of Dallas. Right? And I remember leaving, I mean looking back at it now, but I remember leaving utterly Arrogant regarding uh, ministry, and I remember getting up there, and I remember as I was driving, I, I remember being so excited to ultimately, um, you know, just, just give my life to Denton and, and see what things were going to happen, and, uh, and and conversations that had happened previously were with the lead pastor. His name is Ross, and I love him, and he's he's a great dude. And uh, and Ross would tell me, man, the areas that we're really hurting on is is, is discipleship and leadership development and and planting groups. And I was just like, oh man, that's like music to my ears. Like, that's what I want to do. That's what I know God's calling me to do. So here I go. I moved to Denton. And I remember going to Denton being so arrogant and prideful. I remember thinking to myself that I was going to show these dudes what it was going to look like to actually plant a church. And God stripped everything from me in that season For the longest, what I thought was the longest time, I hated Denton because God was using Denton and the people of Denton, right, to bring me to my knees. And Everything was stripped. Finances were stripped. I had a business that was ultimately going to be supporting me while I was there. Uh, Finances fell through with that. That wasn't as successful as it was planned. Things weren't going well. Here I am finding myself with uh, an undergrad degree working at a vitamin shop trying to raise funds and then eating at St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church at their soup kitchen, right? Pursue humility, Again, maybe some of these things, yes, they're specific to to your potential call as a teacher, but some of these things are also just daily godly things that you should be doing, that we should be doing. But moving back to the teachers, here's the third recommendation. The reason I believe that you should be patient, the reason I believe that you should pursue humility, is because of the reality that not only will you be judged stricter by God, but you will be criticized by others. You will be criticized by others. See, in terms of being judged by God, there is this heavy responsibility that, that teachers walk around with. There's a, there's a heavy, weighty responsibility that I walk around with, um, particularly when, when I became a pastor and, and now uh, being um, privileged to, to, to lead our, our church, right? Until other dudes come on board. Um, but apart from that, it's, it's, there's a weighty responsibility, and in addition to that weighty responsibility, it means that you and I are going to be criticized by others. Um, I've, I've, I've been told that you should, uh, a rule of thumb is, uh, if, if you want to know if you're disliked, take 5% of you know, uh, your classroom, take 5% of your church, take 5% of, of, uh, of your students, and that's how many really don't like you, <laughs> right? So there's going to be this criticism that comes with it because you're not always going to be liked, and that's, that's, that's heavy. And it's going to take us into something else in a bit. And I, wa- and I wanted to make that point. I wanted to make that point specifically to you, the church. And we'll talk about that in just a bit. But those would be my three recommendations that you need to understand, you need to pursue, and that you need to think through. Number one, be patient. Number two, pursue humility. And number three, not only are you going to be judged by God or judged stricter by God, um, you're also going to be criticized by others. And it leads us into verse 2. Right? It leads us in the verse 2 when he writes, where are we? Here we go. Verse 2, where he says, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Right? Let me, let me break it down really, really uh, simplistically. We all stumble. Right? Underline that. Highlight it if you haven't. We all stumble. Okay? We all stumble, and sadly, oftentimes, in the church, when others stumble, we're ready to throw rocks. We're ready to throw rocks, right? Now, this is still pertaining to teachers, but he's speaking now directly to the rest of the church, and as I'm communicating you this, this is speaking directly to the church. We're ready to throw rocks, right? Teachers are going to stumble. You will stumble. The question is, are you going to pick up a rock? Are you going to pick up a rock? Or what rock are you going to grab this time? Right? What rock are you going to grab this time? If you, if you remember with me briefly, you can go back to John 8, where, where the woman was, was caught in adultery. And so they bring this woman before Jesus. And, uh, and, and the Pharisees say, you know, the law says that we should stone such a woman. And so Jesus says, all right, got it. Whoever is without sin can cast the first stone. Right? And what do those homies start doing? One at a time, they start dropping the rock and start walking away. And the only one who could throw a stone didn't. The only one who could throw a stone didn't. Oftentimes, in the church, when we stumble... You're so ready, and it's not just teachers, but nonetheless, you're so ready to pick up a rock and criticize. You're so ready to gossip. You're so ready to criticize. You're so ready to attack rather than to extend grace and mercy and overlook the offense you might say, overlook the offense. Yeah, let's let's go to Proverbs 19. This is verse 11, and the writer says, "'Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense.'" Oftentimes in the church, we'll go to gossip and and we mask it in prayer. Man, we need to pray for so-and-so. We need to pray for this individual because you know what they did, X, Y, and Z. We're ready to criticize instead of to coach and help others. Right, Instead of maybe pulling someone to the side and say, hey, I love you. I want the best for you. I'm for you. This is what I think you should work on, or this is what I heard, or this is what I saw you do. Let's address these things. How can I better help you? Instead, you're ready to criticize and you're ready to shoot them down. Other times you'll see others stumble and you're ready to pick up that rock and you're ready to chunk it to them because you're so self-righteous and we lose sight of grace and mercy and overlooking an offense. We are so quick to overlook the person of Jesus. The one who could throw a stone did not, and you count yourself as righteous because you're ready to throw a stone. What's the point of that? What's the point of it? Words and language matter, but this is what's of greater importance and significance, and it's godliness. Godliness. It's what we've been talking about. Now this doesn't mean that you don't address things when I say to overlook an offense. That doesn't mean you don't address it, but there are some things that you need to let go of. There's some things, simply, and you know whatever it, is, you know what I'm talking about. Whatever the Holy Spirit is convicting you of right now, you need to let go of it. So that would be my first question to you. What rock do you need to drop? What rock do you need to drop right now? and drop it, and drop it, right? Instead, offer grace and mercy, overlook the offense. The Bible says that, that, that love doesn't count a list of wrongs, yet I know people, men and women, who literally write lists over the things that they've done to one another so that in the event when an argument happens, they pull those suckers out. And you laugh, but it's true. And you laugh, because it might be you. Right? That's the whole thing. Overlook the offense. The one who could throw a stone didn't. What stone do you need to drop today? Not tomorrow. Today. All right. Let's go to the next couple of verses. This is verses three through eight. Now three through eight, uh, I mentioned this a little bit earlier. Three through eight seems like it's, it's a lot, right? But it's a lot because he, he gives Three different analogies in this section, right? He uses the analogy of, uh, what does he use the analogy of? I'm already lost. He uses the analogy of a bit to a horse. He uses the analogy of a rudder to a ship. And he uses the analogy of a, of a, of a spark of fire leading to ultimately a, a forest fire. So let's just read through that and we'll, we'll walk through each. Each, each one, okay? Here we go. And and I might skip a little bit just because particularly the force fire analogy comes after verse 5, but that's just the nerd in me. Anyway, um, here we go. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Here, here's what he's saying about that, right? And remember, the, the crux of this is going to be the tongue. When he's talking about a bit, I, I ended up doing some research, and I've ridden a horse a few times, and I never knew that's what it was called, right? And so when it comes to the bit, it's like this mouthpiece that gets put in the horse, and the one who is controlling the reins, right, I'm looking, I'm actually looking at James to see if I'm saying all this right, and so um, he <laughs> it puts it into the mouth of the horse, and the one who's controlling the reins, right, is the one who ultimately controls the horse. What I also read about uh, regarding the bit and the one controlling the reins is once the bit is inside the mouth of the horse, the person who's in the saddle, the person who's riding the horse now doesn't just know what direction they're going to head in, but knows where the legs are. Like if one of their back legs is moving, is back, it's backstepping and one of the front legs is moving forward, uh, where the shoulders are going to go. Like that's a lot of intricate knowledge from a bit. Right, But nonetheless, the point is that when the bit is placed into the horse's mouth, the horse is now tamed, the horse is now controlled. Next up, he goes on to say, uh, look at the ships also, though they are large, uh, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs, right? So so here's what he's talking about regarding ships. Like these ships are, are huge. Like you think about like uh, uh, carriers or you think about just battleships. They're, they're ginormous, right? And they're often powered by this small rudder. Now, here's what I would say regarding that analogy. You might find yourself looking at the analogy of the bit and the horse and you're like, I mean, I kind of get that, but I'm a city person. I've never ridden a horse. But maybe you went to history class a few times. And so you look at the analogy of a ship, really big and massive and strong, powered by a small rudder. That might be you, right? That's the one I associated myself first, because oftentimes what you tend to think is, man, I'm big, and I'm strong, and I'm good, and I'm uh, disciplined, right? And uh, this little thing is what powers you, and it's that little thing that once it's exposed to vulnerability will be the one that sinks you, right? Verse five, he says, uh, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great Things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire! And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell." for every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind but no human can tame the tongue it is a restless evil full of deadly poison in short what he's saying in that section he's saying man as humans we've been able to tame all of these wild animals but when it comes to the tongue which is like a wild animal we can't we can't tame it Right? So going back to the analogies, we've talked briefly about two of them. When it comes to the forest fire, it's always a spark. It's a spark that sets it all off. Here are two things that I want you to know regarding those three analogies. Again, there's a lot of information, but I want you to take two things. I want you to walk away with two things regarding all three of those analogies. Number one, small things have big power. Small things have big power. Number two, when exposed, and this is more like of a practical thing, when exposed, none of those examples expected to cause as much damage as they did or as they do. Think about it. In those arguments, right, let's go back to those statements at the beginning. That's not what I meant. That's not what I said, right? You don't expect it to do. You don't expect your words. You don't expect your tongue to do as much damage as it unfortunately does, right? And that's always the case. That's always the case when it comes to not expecting what's actually going to happen, right? And I'll give you two quick examples, two illustrations. The first one, and they're all regarding fire, <laughs> I think. Well, yeah. So the first one, I remember I was, I was 13 years old. My mom and dad left the house and I was home alone, Right? And, uh, <laughs> parents are already like saying stuff, anyway, uh, so my parents left the house and I had a lighter and I remember walking into the garage. I remember being bored and there was this cardboard box up against the wall of the garage. And I remember lighting and I say this to- like, I am being honest. I am telling you the report that I told the fire marshal. Okay. And so, <laughs> which kind of already gives it away. Right. So I lit the corner of this box, like I lit it on fire, I guess, right? And, uh, and the doorbell rang, right? And I, so if, I don't know how to say it, like if, if this is the box, let's say this is the corner of the box, right? If that's the corner of the box, I pinched it and I scraped it, right? I scraped it off of my fingers. And I remember even seeing the black marks of, of the cardboard and the, the, you know, the fire and all that, right? There was no fire, you're on my side. And so I went, and it was my dad's friend. His name is Mike and his wife, Julie. And so they came into the house, and uh, he said, hey, where, where's your dad? And I was like, oh, they went to go run an errand. They'll be back in a couple minutes. And he said, yeah, we'll just hang out. I was like, that's cool. Mike was always a real cool guy. And so we're, we're hanging out, and I'm, and I'm still messing with this lighter. And Mike says, man, do you smell something burning? And I said, oh, it's, it's the lighter. I've, been, I've just been messing with it. I keep messing with it. And he's like, oh. I guess. And Mike wasn't too far away from me, so, I mean, it kind of made sense. Julie was in the kitchen, and she goes, no, I really do smell something burning. And then all of a sudden, the fire detectors start going off, and Mike and I get up, and there's two ways in my parents' house to get to the garage, and so we go separate ways. We open the doors, and this flame is, is on, on the wall that that box was on, right? And up on the ceiling. So above us is the, is the attic. On the other side of that wall was my brother and I, uh, our, our restroom, right? So this entire garage is, is like, it was like backdraft, right? And so uh, everything, nobody remembers that movie. And so um, everything is on fire, and I remember we open the garage, we go and grab the hose, and there's a fire extinguisher right there, and I was like, grab the hose. And so we're like trying to get this fire down, right? And we finally do, the fire department shows up, dudes bust out the axe, they like, Check to see the damage and all that. And I remember just sitting in my bedroom, just, like, cringing at what my dad was going to say. And, and Mike came in, and he's like, man, you just need to own up to it. I was like, it was out. And, uh, and so the fire marshal comes in, or the captain, and, and he was like, hey, man, like, what happened? So I told him. I told him everything. I even showed him on my hand. And he was like, well, this happens. And I was like, I guess. Like, you get to go home. Um, and so... <laughs> So that happens and my dad got on me and whatever. So here's, that's not the point. The point point of it was, it was a small spark, right? And I did not think it would lead to this huge fire. I did not think it was going to lead to the almost destruction of our house. Oftentimes in those heated discussions, that's where you find yourself whether you're ready to throw that rock, man, or you're just ready to have a good point, right? You have no idea what kind of damage that's going to cause, right? Furthermore, moving on to another quick example. These are the, the, the Wallow Fires. I hope I'm saying this right, right? But the Wallow Fires. The Wallow Fires, it was a fire from May of 2011 to July of 2011 that was in Arizona and New Mexico, Right? And, this, and here, here's what I'll say about this one. This isn't the biggest or the greatest fire in U.S. history, but I wanted to find one that was set off by something small. You know what I'm saying? Right? And so the Wallow Fire, again, from May 2011 to July of 2011, uh, started in Arizona, carried its way to New Mexico. Uh, 538,000 acres were burned. 72 buildings were destroyed. 16 people lost their lives. And it was because some campers didn't put a campfire out correctly. Right? Now, do you think they intended for all of this destruction to happen? right? There were reports, there were reports of people similar to, to me doing stuff in the woods that led to horrendous fires. There there was one near near Wisconsin, many, uh, a little over a hundred years ago, uh, where, where um, so this town is catching a blaze. Uh, the forest is just, all on fire and so the people seek to find refuge at a nearby river but the fire was near the river and so the fire was so hot that the river began to boil and people lost their lives in the river right now do you think however that started whoever started that one intended for those things to happen And you see, we'll look at those examples and be like, oh my gosh, like that's so hurtful. And it is, it really is. But it's the same thing in those occasions, those arguments, those settings, when you're about to pick up that rock or when you're about to say something to one another. You're not thinking what's this gonna lead to. You're not thinking what the result of this is going to lead to. Man, but you're so ready to give them hell. You're so ready to give them hell, right? And the truth is, You can say hard things. Hear me on that. You can say hard things, just say them in a helpful way. You can say hard things, just say them in a helpful way. What and how you say things matters. And it's time, church, to stop using lame excuses on how and what language you use. Now, I'm not just talking about cussing. See, many times in the church, or man, this might be you, you'll immediately go to cussing and be like, you're right. We should, I didn't say that. It doesn't have to be cussing. You don't have to cuss to tear someone down. You don't have to use horrible words. It's how you say things and even other different word choices that will bring them down. When he talks about, let me let me read this one section toward the end. He writes, uh, the tongue, the tongue is set among our members, saying the whole body is setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. And you might find yourself here today and you're saying, man, but I'm a Christian and Jesus is at work in me. And it's true, you may not be headed to hell, but you're okay unleashing hell on someone by what you say. Right? And you're okay with that. And you might use the banner of Christianity to mask it. You might say something like, well, you just needed to hear it. And you might be even defensive right now. You might be really defensive right now. And you know how I know? Because I'm defensive. I'm defensive because when it comes to language, this is probably the thing that gets me in trouble the most. All right? Sometimes it's not what I say, it's how I say it and how I look when I say it, right? And I get it. And, I, and here's the other thing. I am not someone who would ever say that, man, I am this, this humble person. I love to steal Dave Kraft's, uh, not, it's not Dave Kraft, C.J. Mahaney's quote. I am a proud person pursuing humility. This is the area that I, that I jack it up on the most, it's in my language. It's, it's in how I say things. It's how I communicate to my son, how I communicate to my wife, how I communicate things even to our leadership. And what I love is that there are men and my wife and my son in my life who will pull me to the side and say, you're being a jerk, right? Because this is what you've said. This is how you look when you say it. And that's really hard, but that's inviting someone into your life so that they can say your words back to you. Right? So stop using lame excuses, because that's what they are, guys. They're lame excuses. Stop being so defensive. Let's go to the next section. This is verses 9 through 12. So he writes... With it, he's referring to the tongue, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought to not be so. Does a spring pour forth uh, from uh, the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Excuse me. Neither can a salt pond year yield, excuse me, yield fresh water. Here's what he's getting at. The mouth reveals everything about you. And you cannot change. We cannot change unless Jesus is leading. Unless Jesus so to so to address one of the analogies, unless Jesus is in the saddle, The point he is making is that we need to address the source. And the source is the heart. And unless the heart changes, what and how we say things won't. Say that one more time. Unless the heart changes, what we say, how we say, the tone in which we use will not change. It will not change. Practically, he's getting to this. Good things don't produce bad things. Good things don't produce bad things. One who is double-minded and inconsistent, say that one more time, one who is double-minded, because this is something he addressed back in chapter one. One who is double-minded and inconsistent with the things of God in his heart will be double-minded and inconsistent with his speech. Feel me on that. One who is double-minded and inconsistent with the things of God will be double-minded and inconsistent with the things of his speech. Ultimately, what what James is getting to in this section is the contradiction that we live out in our lives. With this mouth, we both bless God and we curse people. He's addressing the contradiction that we live out daily. Daily. And the source is the heart. The source is changing the heart. The heart must be renewed. Listen to the words of Jesus. This one, man, this one gets me a lot because um, of all the trouble I've been in. Matthew 12, 34 to 37. This is what Jesus says. He says, he's speaking to the Pharisees, and he writes, "'You brood of vipers, "'how can you speak good when you are evil?' For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned." here would be my last three questions for you. I've asked you a lot of questions. Here's more that I want you to to reflect on. Here are my last three questions. If words matter, right? If words, how we speak and what we say are a result of a changed, a regenerated heart, here would be my three questions. Number one, uh, what is making you bitter? what is making you bitter? What is, what is making you bitter or who is making you bitter? So much that you gossip about them, so much that you slander them, so much that you speak evil against them, so much that you don't want to be in the same room as them, so much that you'll talk smack uh, about them or even to their face. Who or what is making you bitter? Who do you need to forgive? Now, here's the thing about forgiveness. Here's the thing about all of these questions. I'm going to say all of these questions as an individual to individuals who are in need of the same grace that Christ has given us through his death and work on the cross. I don't say these things. I don't give these questions as an individual who's made it. I am far, far, far from any of that. I ask these questions as a pastor, a brother, and a friend to those as someone who is in need of the same grace and the same mercy that Christ freely gives. Because I know I'm in need of it. So what or who is making you bitter? That might mean you need to have some conversations this week. That might mean it's going to be a tough conversation. And that might mean you need to own up to some things. Second question. What is it that you're coveting? What is it that you're coveting? Maybe you see someone else, right? Or you see others. And you're like, man, I wish I had their success. I wish I had their stuff. I wish I had a spouse. I wish I had a family. I wish I had kids. What is it that you're coveting that when you see others in those circumstances, you're like, man, if I could just get that, if I could just be there, I don't understand why I'm not there. What is it that you're coveting? Number three, What idols rule your heart? Better way of saying it, what's demonizing your heart? What is it that has stolen your affection for Jesus that you believe, that you believe this, whatever that is, that you believe that this will give you satisfaction that Jesus won't? What is that? I don't know what it is. Maybe it's education. Maybe it's family. Maybe it's something that you think you just need to have because simply Jesus will not quench and satisfy that hunger. What idols rule your heart? Notice I'm not saying what idols ruled your heart. I'm I'm talking about now. What idols rule your heart? What has stolen your affections for Jesus that you believe Man, if I could get that, if I just become all about that, it will satisfy my hunger. And it is something that Jesus cannot provide. This is a a quote by uh, uh, Hendrikus Berkoff, and I love it. And we'll close in just a second. He writes, only a renewed heart can produce pure speech. And consistently, though not perfectly, pure speech is to be the product of a renewed heart. Watch what you say and invite others to tell you what you're saying, to speak back what you're saying. Husbands, invite your wives to tell you what you're saying, to speak back what you're saying. Don't make an excuse. Oh, she, yeah, she could tell me whatever. No, 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 no. Create the space and allow your wife to speak, the words, to speak your words back to you. Not daggers, right? Wives, right? Wives, speak the word, ask, excuse me, ask your husbands to speak your words back to them. See, many of the wives right now like, stood up straight like, yeah, I can't wait to have that conversation. As soon as it was turned, it was like, why? Why? <laughs> Right, very valley, right. Invite your husband. Hey, why don't you tell me how I how I how I talk, how I say things? It's going to be a hard conversation, but don't skip the conversation, and don't assume that because you're in a good season, you don't need to have that conversation. In fact, because you're in a good season, all the more should you have that conversation, so that when a difficult season happens, you're not thrown off guard. There are boundaries that you have set. There are things that you have agreed on together that you will do to better love and serve one another when that happens. If you're not married, that's cool. Are you in community and have you invited other people to say, hey, why don't you speak back the words that I've said? Don't check out just because I addressed married people. And even if you are married and in community, invite other men, other women to speak words back to you. Stop making lame excuses. Because they're lame, right? So with that being said, we're almost done. Are we convicted? Uh, Man, I was convicted this week. But not anymore. I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) Sorry. I'm so sorry. Um, Here's the good news. Okay? If you're convicting, you're just like, man, this is just weighing heavy on me. I've jacked it up, I've dropped the ball, that's me. I love to light people on fire, all this stuff, right? Like, if that's where you find yourself, here's, here's, the, here's the good news. Right? Jesus gets the last word. Jesus gets the last word. By not stumbling and going to the cross to die for ways in which we have stumbled he gets the last word. Right? The good news, the good news is that while horrible, vile and shameful things are being said, Jesus said, "Father, forgive them." Father, forgive them. The good news is that in Christ you are forgiven. If you haven't been told that in a while, hear it. In Christ, you are forgiven. Man, in Christ, Romans says, then there is now no condemnation for those in Jesus. And the goal of this isn't to condemn you, but the goal of this is for the Holy Spirit to convict you so that as we get an opportunity and just a minute to respond, we would respond. We would respond out of what Jesus has done. We would respond because Jesus has had the last word. We would respond because Jesus says that we're forgiven and that we're redeemed. And that second chance that we would always been wanting, you got. You have. Right? And so you're going to be given three ways to respond. I love lists you got three ways in, in which you can respond. The first one is we're going to go into a time of, uh, and, I'll, and I'll pray for this in just a minute, but the first one is we're going to go into a time of, of giving, tithes and offerings. This is, this is where we give Jesus our stuff. This is where we're not tied to our finances because here's the thing about it, right? When it comes to tithes and offerings, at the end of the day, it's not about money. At the end of the day, it's trust in Jesus, tithes and offering, not just a commandment, are a way for us to put to death what we think belongs to us and to trust in Jesus. That's number one. That's number one. If we're looking to, man, I want to change. I want renewal. I want redemption. Then trust in Jesus. Number two, we're going to go into a time of communion. Sean's going to come up here in just a second and pray for our time. In this time of communion, this is where I would encourage you to spend time in prayer. Confess your sin. Trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Know that he can redeem your heart. He can clean your heart. And as a result of a redeemed and cleaned heart, so will your mouth be. So will your mouth be. And finally, is going to lead us in worship? or the band's going to lead us in worship? This is where we get to sing words. We get to worship Jesus with our words because of what he's done, who he is, his promises, and what he's doing. Those are the three ways in which we respond right now. Those are going to be the three ways in which you respond. And particularly in communion, here, this, this is ultimately church culture, right? And I use that a lot because I've, I've gotten a chance to see it. Take your time. Take your time. Just because we walk into a time of communion doesn't mean you just get up right away. And I know that's going to make some people awkward, like, oh, I'll just sit down. But yeah, then sit down and, and spend intentional time in prayer. You need to go to the back? Go to the back. You want to get on your knees? Get on your knees. We're going to have people up front to pray, uh, who are available to pray. If you need a prayer, come up to the front, and we'll pray for you. Don't waste your time. Don't come to the front unrepentant. You bring judgment on your hands. Spend intentional time with Jesus and remember, church, that you are forgiven. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Fathers, we close our time. Um, Lord, the, the, the reminder here, or, or the, the, yeah, the reminder is that uh, our mouth reveals, or our mouth is a revelation of our heart. And that's really, really difficult because we might be uh, revisiting um, conversations or arguments or occasions where we've said some really, really foolish things to one another, where we've torn other people down with our words, where we have said some really unkind things, where we have said to one person, I love Jesus, and then cursed the next person that walked through that door. And Lord, I'm, I'm guilty of that. And the good news is not only has, has, has your son Jesus received the, the last word that we are forgiven, but it is a hope and a trust that, that we can put and pour our lives into, that we can literally remember, remain, and rest in the grace that Jesus has given us freely because of his death and work on the cross. And so, Lord, my prayer is that we would invite the Holy Spirit into our hearts right now and beg and cry out to you for a clean heart, for a redeemed heart so that our mouth, our tongue would be renewed. How we speak to others and one another would be renewed. As we go into this time of uh, tithes and offerings, Lord, uh, Jesus gave us his best, and so this is where we give our stuff. This is where we give our best as a response to the testimony of your work in our lives. Let us not look past this as simply another time of worship, or excuse me, another time of the service, but let us look to this as an opportunity to respond in worship. We love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.